This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Bear Extraction House. Much appreciation for your support of the Humboldt Chronicles. First, some news. Big election day wins for cannabis legalization. Five states representing different regions voted in favor of legalization earlier this month. Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota. Later in this program, we'll get to the details of the propositions that passed in those states, and we'll talk about whether this political momentum will give Congress a push to move forward on federal legalization. In fact, there is a vote on legalization scheduled for December in the United States House of Representatives. We'll get to a whole discussion on all of this later in the show. Here in California, we're nearing three years into statewide legalization. No one thought it'd be easy, and it hasn't been. Doing business continues to be more difficult for people in the cannabis industry than for their counterparts in other industries. Procedures, licensing, permitting, taxes, finances, you name it. The cannabis industry is put in unfavorable positions. It's like two runners in a 100-meter race, except for one has to clear a hurdle every 10 meters and the other doesn't. So let's talk about the disadvantage of being the only one in the race having to jump over obstacles at full speed, which is how some in the cannabis industry feel for sure. We'll be speaking with Craig Najedli of Satori Wellness in McKinleyville and Joanna Hasek, an attorney with Clark Howell LLP in Los Angeles, who starts off for us by outlining the obstacles faced by many of her clients in the cannabis industry. Almost everything that they do is different. So if you're a non-cannabis business owner, let's say you want to start an ice cream parlor, you have to go to your city, find a building that's in the right zone, and then go ahead and get a business license. And as long as you can do those things, you can get operational pretty quickly. But for cannabis business, because it's illegal in the eyes of the federal government, the procedure that a cannabis business needs to go through in order to get operational is vastly different. Uh, it involves finding a location that's in the green zone, which means it's appropriately zoned for cannabis. Then they have to go through a very long and rigorous local application process that involves a merit-based application in some cities. And then once they've finally gotten through all of that, they have to go to the state and apply for a state license and run the gauntlet of getting a state license, which you don't have to do for most non-cannabis businesses and non-regulated businesses. You can only operate in a very small area of the city, sometimes even one commercial zone. And I think that this is because of the stigma towards cannabis. It really is still treated um, with a very stigmatized, kind of penalizing, um, not-in-my-backyard kind of attitude. And so we're seeing the cities really limit the areas where cannabis can occur. And it's not really clear why, because the applicants have to go through so much in the application process to show they won't be a nuisance, to show that odor won't be detected outside of the building, to show that they're secure and they're safe, that they're following state procedures. And so it's not really clear why the 
the areas that they can operate in needs to still be so limited. And it's one of the big barriers to entry in that because each city has a very limited green zone, there's only so much real estate that's available. And that oftentimes, you know, goes to the highest bidder or the most well-connected person that doesn't leave opportunities for small businesses and equity operators. Craig Najedli at Satori Wellness in McKinleyville has been in this fray from day one of California legalization. As he sees it, on a day-to-day basis, business is good. There's demand for his products. But there's always something in front of him that's going to demand more attention and slow him down, like the regulations that govern taxes and finances in the cannabis industry. All of them have their their different nuances and um, hurdles, especially from the taxation point of view, because uh, the 280E federal tax regulation that we have to deal with, we can't write off anything that's not inventory, cost of goods related. So I would say... If you took that tax element out of the picture, I'd say, oh, retail's great. Retail's amazing. You know, there's there's good business. There's customers coming through the door. Sales are good. But then when you go to do your, your taxes at the end of the year and realize you can't write off employees, you can't write off square foot, you can't write off your rent for uh, where the cannabis is being sold. There's so much that we can't write off that it really dwindles the viability of the business. And then on cultivation side of things, as a farm, you can write off almost everything because it takes all those expenses to produce that product. So they're all the cost of goods sold. So I would say, and then in distribution, it's the same as almost as retail. There is really no cost of goods products in distribution because you're just buying a product and then selling it. So you can't write off your vans, your vehicle, the vehicles traveling around the state. You can't write off your employees, your sales reps. So the retail and the distribution are extremely harsh when it comes to tax time in terms of the economic viability of the business, whereas cultivation, um, the cultivation tax hurts a lot, being taxed by the, the local level and the state level and per pound of product or gram of product, for instance, is rough, but we're able to at least capture most of our expenses and then we get to do our taxes. So, so they all have their hurdles, but I think cultivation right now is where you can at least write off more of your expenses and not be hit as hard when it comes to filing your taxes at the end of the year. Starting with the cultivation, because you have nothing without cultivation, I think the cultivation tax needs to be greatly reduced indoor just sidelined for a couple years so that people can have some money to reinvest in their business and then get taxed once you get your infrastructure up. You know, no one starts day one having the infrastructure that they really want in place. You know, you have to grow a business over time. So I think the the cultivation tax side of uh, how the state taxes, I mean, at least the locals, it's a per square foot, it's a one time a year, you know what you're paying. Um, but the state, you're paying per gram of product you produce. And so you can't even become a really efficient grower and save in that tax aspect because you're going to get taxed on how efficient you are in ability to produce more volume. You're just going to get taxed on it. So it really hurts the businesses trying to grow with no access to funding off their own operations when you're excessively taxed on how well you're doing um, based on the product you're producing. And the other side of that is the federal tax, the 280E thing. So things I would most like to see changed are the federal tax in terms of 280E and the cultivation tax for the state. They could still make great money on excise tax, excise taxes. Ultimately, a consumer choice, you know, that's the 15% charge to the consumer. That's pretty hefty and unfair, I think, to the consumer, but that's a choice. 
But for the businesses trying to fulfill the consumer to have that choice, uh, we're just so excessively taxed that it's hard to keep the businesses stable, sustainable, and able to grow. Industries across the board, of course, face regulatory restrictions and oversight, some more than others. There are good reasons for some regulations. There are blatantly political reasons for others and only outdated or irrational grounds for still other regulations. Where do cannabis industry regulations fall on the continuum? Are there comparisons out there we could draw from? So I would say the closest comparison would be the alcohol industry. The alcohol industry is also heavily regulated. It's similar because you have to get a special local permit, pay specific local taxes, and then obtain a state license from the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. So I'd say alcohol is very similar in that you have to get a license and that you have to follow very specific rules in regards to obviously not allowing people under 21 on your property. But that being said, cannabis definitely has way more restrictions um, and things to follow than alcohol. One example would be track and trace. So there's this thing called metric and track and trace, which requires every plant to be tracked by the state from seed to sale. So every single person in the supply chain is tracked. And although alcohol does have somewhat of a tracking system, it's no way near the same as metric or the cannabis tracking system. And another example of way, the ways alcohol, which is a highly regulated industry and cannabis are different, is that in the cannabis industry, all products, flour, edibles, topicals, tinctures, doesn't matter the type of product, are required to be placed in child-resistant packaging. And the alcohol industry does not have to do that. They're not subject to child-resistant packaging, as I'm sure you've seen. Um, You know, there is not a clear reason as to why there's one versus the other. Why do we have child-resistant packaging for cannabis and not for alcohol? Again, I think that comes down to the stigma, to the fact that it's federally illegal, and the fact that Cannabis is being held to different standards. Um, In regards to other regulated industries, I would say that cannabis is more similar to the pharmaceutical industry in the level of regulation, um, safety, efficacy, and uh, testing and tracking and tracing. That's more similar to how we track pharmaceuticals. After a quick break, we'll continue our discussion with a look at some specific commonplace systems and methods that are typically available to most industries but are out of bounds for the cannabis industry, like just going to the bank. That's ahead right after this break, and later, more states vote to legalize and Congress schedules a vote on federal legalization. This is the Humboldt Chronicles. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Joanna Hasek, an attorney with Clark Howell LLP in Los Angeles, and Craig Najedley of Satori Wellness in McKinleyville. Our intent is to shine a light on the regulatory impediments and barriers faced by the cannabis industry that stall or even prevent simple business practices that are somewhat taken for granted in other industries. Here's attorney Joanna Hasek. It is absolutely more costly to run a cannabis than a non-cannabis business because of Section 280E of the Internal Revenue Code, which forbids businesses from deducting ordinary expenses from their gross income because the business is associated with trafficking of a controlled substance. So um, basically, normal businesses can 
write off a lot of expenses in their taxes, cannabis businesses end up paying taxes on their gross income. So they're subject to a tax rate that's much more like 70%. Um, in addition to federal tax issues, cannabis businesses are often subject to local taxes based on gross receipts. So, for example, in Oakland, it's 5 or 10%. In other cities, they'll have a different tax rate. And so they're getting hit with a very high federal tax rate in addition to very arduous local taxes. Um, typically, the local taxes are more expensive than alcohol businesses. So, for example, in Oakland, it's 4.5% for alcohol, but 5% for cannabis. So when you add all of those different taxes on top of each other, the tax rate for cannabis businesses is considerably higher than non-cannabis businesses. And that gets us back to a recurring theme here on the Humble Chronicles, banking. Banks are federally chartered, meaning that they've received the federal government's permission to operate in the financial area. A federal charter means that banks can't accept business from cannabis companies as long as those companies are federally illegal. That makes tasks that are somewhat routine in other industries nearly impossible in the cannabis world. Here again is Joanna Hossack. Banking access to traditional capital is not available to cannabis businesses. Um, this makes it really difficult for cannabis businesses to get loans, and they end up having a business that's very cash-heavy and have to take on different uh, procedures to handle that amount of cash. So with a cash-heavy business, looking at lots of security, armored cars, and different methods to keep that cash safe. And obviously, it does create a lot of risk from a safety perspective for employees. Um, there is no workaround in regards to the banking restrictions. There are certain banks that are willing to work with cannabis businesses. So long as they can run a thorough due diligence uh, kind of background on them and make sure that they're complying with state law, that they have their local permits and state licenses. However, for those banks that are willing to work with cannabis businesses, they often charge a flat fee or a percentage of the total amount of the bank account. So the banks that will work with cannabis businesses charge quite hefty fees in order to do so. It's very challenging to operate without loans. A lot of people are self-funded. There's a lot of investment that happens, whether it be all angel investors or friends and family raises. We haven't seen a lot of institutional investors enter the space yet or kind of venture capital funds, but there are a lot of private investors that really end up funding a lot of these projects. Like most in the cannabis industry, Craig Najedli at Satori Wellness in McKinleyville faces financial obstacles every day. Where does he go for help? Who does he call? What does he do in order to, let's say, finance the growth of his business? There's really nowhere feasible to go for financing. I mean, you know, I get contacted by people offering financing all the time, and it's just really expensive financing. A lot of it's based on property, lien holding, financing. And in my case, I've already tied up my properties for financing because that was the only option that I could explore. So leveraging the property you own for financing has been one of the only mechanisms that we found and pretty expensive money being offered. So it's kind of doesn't help as much as it, it would if we had better options. But, you know, when you're desperate and you need capital, you kind of got to take what you can get. So, you know, paying up with a 12% and Three four percent transaction deals, you know, it's a lot of money that gets eaten up in these deals just to get any capital. And then other than that, you're kind of looking at, you know, the sharks, um, equity investors bringing on capital from Canada or people out of the industry. And, you know, to me, that takes away from the value of a, 
a craft brand that is grown, cultivated, and ran out of Humboldt. So as a last resort, the equity option is out there, and it's a bit harder, especially since COVID and everything going on in the industry, not maturing as fast as I think most investors in even the state of California thought it would be, is that even those private equity investment options are kind of drying up a lot lately in the last six months, too. So really, there's nowhere to go. Uh, basically, it's just the, the only mechanism right now is trying to fuel um, funding off of business operations and, and trying to you know, spend as little as you can and, and make the most out of what you're doing and um, really slow-paced growth. In theory, there's local help and support for the cannabis industry through Humboldt County's Measure S funds, which are generated by cultivation taxes. Recently, for example, the county allocated some of those funds for a marketing assessment, studying successful marketing strategies that might be used by the local cannabis industry. Craig suggests that, for right now, a better use of the money might be the creation of a loan fund as a source of capital for locals in the business. Yeah, I think more than anything right now, the cannabis community in Humboldt needs access to funding. And so I think it would be a much wiser approach to use more of the funds that are being put back towards uh, the cannabis industry in terms of marketing or the uh, trellis grants and or the equity um, grants that are coming out is to create a loan fund that could actually give us cannabis business some access to capital because we can't go to a traditional bank or credit union or traditional lenders for financing and capitalizing the growth of our businesses. And so I think that would be the best use of those funds is right now, everyone's a startup and needs more funds to grow their business. And by giving us access to a loan mechanism at market interest rates would then create the businesses in Humboldt to establish more of the Humboldt branding and the products they're putting out and also create income for the county to be able to use funds in different ways in terms of marketing and um, such things down the road once we have enough power behind the Humboldt industry to be able to put that marketing out to market. One of the biggest things right now is most of the flour being cultivated in Humboldt is grown and sold in bulk because uh, growers necessarily aren't creating brands. And so once you sell it into bulk, you're selling it to a company in L.A. where the Humboldt name's lost right away. You know, I've personally focused on branding all my products and packaging all my products and so I'm putting that Humboldt name on all my packaged products that go out to market across the state. But I can only do so much of that because I can't get the funding I need to keep up with the growth of the business to keep that Humboldt name on my product and going out to market. So the biggest thing I think the county should be doing with these Measure S funds that they're reinvesting back into the industry is providing some kind of funding mechanism, loans with interest rates that can help fund the industry that will then make the marketing uh, investment more worthwhile. So I think they're putting the cart before the horse, personally, with investing too much into the marketing before helping let the brands establish themselves. I mean, Humboldt has a legacy branding. Everybody almost in the country that is into cannabis knows Humboldt. So, you know, it doesn't need that much more fuel to that fire. But the people that are trying to stoke the fire need more fuel to keep the fire going. Just ahead, it was a big day at the ballot box for the cannabis industry as more states opted for legalization. Further, a vote on federal legalization is scheduled for early December in the U.S. House of Representatives. We'll run down what happened on Election Day and preview the House vote when the Humboldt Chronicles continues after this short break. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. Cannabis was on the ballot in a number of states on November 3rd, 
There was record voter turnout nationally, fueled in part, of course, by the presidential race, which had the effect of overshadowing some of the other issues on the ballot, like cannabis initiatives. In fact, cannabis initiatives were approved in five different states. In Arizona, Proposition 207 legalized recreational marijuana with 60% voting yes. In Mississippi, voters approved medical marijuana with 68% saying yes. Montana legalized recreational cannabis, 57% yes there. In New Jersey, 67% said yes to public question one, legalizing recreational use. South Dakota chose to put medical and recreational cannabis on the ballot at the same time. Measure 26, medical marijuana, got 70% approval in South Dakota, and Amendment A, recreational, got 54% approval. It was a big election cycle for cannabis, with big margins delivered by the voters in each of those states. That leaves just six states where cannabis is fully illegal. Only six. The times they are a-changing, and that raises the question as to when the federal government will get on board. Once again, here's attorney Joanna Hossack with Clark Howell LLP in Los Angeles. Every single day, our clients are faced with a penumbra of different issues that come from the fact that cannabis is still illegal federally. I'd say the biggest impacts come from taxation and banking. Um, Because cannabis is federally illegal, it's very difficult to access banking. And there are tax code sections that implicate cannabis businesses differently from regular businesses. Um, I think that the federal illegality, what it does is it creates a situation where there's no singular thing that is making it difficult for cannabis operators or creating a hardship. It's more a death by a thousand paper cuts. It's a, every little uh, regulation or local policy that's created to deal with the federal issue just adds up on top of each other to get to the point where there's really nothing left in the pie. I'd say one of the, the big ones is also metric and track and trace in that because it's federally illegal, the federal government wants to be able to keep an eye on where all this cannabis is moving to. And so that's why they have to have track and trace, which is very burdensome, very expensive, very arduous to comply with. Um, but that's going to be a requirement for as long as, you know, cannabis remains federally illegal. Federal legalization, however, might mean a lot more competition from all corners of the country. It might mean that big ag gets very involved with mass production, flooding the market. But Craig Najedley at Satori Wellness in McKinleyville sees opportunity, not danger, on the horizon with federal legalization. I'm always in favor of legalization. I mean, even as not ideal as Prop 64 was, I'm just I'm a proponent of cannabis and think that it should be available to people. I think it's a natural gift of the earth, Mother Nature. So I'm in favor of legalization. I always see opportunity rather than um, being pessimistic. So I think if it was federally legalized, the demand would just be so huge, so fast that nobody could keep up. And then in terms of, you know, worrying about big guys or tobacco companies coming in, that's kind of where I see the marketing assessment that the county's focused on right now really coming into play. When there's more competition in the market, especially when you're talking about a nationwide competition coming in the market, that's when we need the marketing assessment. But then even without that, I think you know we're just always going to have an upper hand. We're legacy farmers. We've been doing this for years and years and years. There's so many nuances to it that you know big ag can come in and you know try to 
take over the market. But, you know, I think a craft farmer is always going to have a place. And I feel like that kind of holds with any industry. You know, alcohol, you could look at the craft brewery and uh, element of that industry is, is thriving right now. So the big guys always have to be on their toes to keep up with the market and the craft producers are the ones that drive the market. A form of federal legalization may be coming up for a vote in the U.S. House of Representatives soon. In early December, the House is expected to vote on the MORE Act, the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, which, if it ultimately became law, would decriminalize cannabis by removing it from the Controlled Substances Act and expunge convictions for nonviolent cannabis offenses. The MORE Act is likely to pass in the House, but to fail in the U.S. Senate, at least as long as the Senate is under Republican control, preventing it from becoming law. So no one really knows for sure how federal legalization will ultimately happen, whether it's through the MORE Act or some other mechanism that garners enough support. Here's attorney Joanna Hossack on how it might unfold. I think that it would be absolutely fantastic if we had federal decriminalization. I would love to see that as soon as possible. Um, I don't, I think in terms of legalization at the federal level, there's a lot to unpack there. I think that the real, the more realistic pathway is that we'll probably see changes to things like 280E and banking first, um, and then potentially deferring to the states to allow them to operate under their program and allowing different states to transact with each other. Because right now, cannabis cannot cross any state lines. So even if you have two states right next to each other that both have an active cannabis program, the cannabis cannot be, uh, cannot cross those borders. And so I think something that would allow kind of incremental changes is probably the direction that this is going in. But you just, you never know, of course. Um, I think when we do have full-on legalization, there's just so much that the federal regulatory agencies are going to need to work through, like labeling and packaging, um, different GMP standards. And I think that will just take quite a while to really grapple through all those issues. And we're more likely to see kind of piecemeal legislation that, that tackles one issue at a time before we get to full legalization. We asked Joanna. If she had the opportunity to write the legislation, how would she approach it? Hmm. Well, I think that's a great question. I haven't really thought about what I would write in terms of federal legislation. I do think that starting to allow the states that have active programs to work with each other and develop their own kind of system um, would be a great start because I'm not sure how to grapple with those issues of there are certain states that just haven't really caught up to us. Um, in terms of generally being supportive of cannabis. So I think we have to go cautiously, but I think allowing the states that currently have programs to kind of do a beta test would be a great first step. She mentioned beta testing or real-world field testing aimed at identifying glitches before a full rollout of a plan or a product or a service. In a sense, California and Humboldt County have been doing such testing in the cannabis industry since 2018. We weren't the first state, but we were certainly among the first to experiment with legalization and how best to bring a once illegal commodity to a legal market. Are there advantages to being among the first to run the gauntlet? When cannabis is legalized federally, will we benefit from having learned on the state level as one of the early adopters of legalization? Or will federal legalization send us back to the testing stage with things like interstate commerce and new competition creating new issues? There's definitely a lot of disadvantages in being the first because you're kind of the guinea pig and that you have to go through the whole process and, and learn 
by trial and error, and people coming in later on don't have to deal with that. But at the same time, there's something to be said about having your permits, having your license, being up and running, and being able to be the first company to beta test different products in the market and have your brand be really well-known when there's less competition. I think every year the market in California is going to get more and more saturated. There's going to be more and more competition. And at this early phase, there is an opportunity to really stand well ahead of the competition because you're maybe one of the only operators in the game. Most agree that federal legalization or decriminalization is inevitable in some form or fashion. No one knows when, and with a new administration and a new Congress on the way in Washington, there will be more questions to be answered on this issue once the 117th Congress is sworn in on January 3, 2021, and once the Biden-Harris team is sworn in on January 20th. Meanwhile, the local cannabis industry has been fortunate to have been deemed essential during this COVID-19 pandemic. For many outlets, retail sales have been somewhat stable, with consumers seeing it as a necessity. Relief, however, from the pandemic and clarity from Washington about federal legalization can't come soon enough. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thank you very much to our guests, Joanna Hossack of Clark Howell LLP in Los Angeles, and Craig Najedli of Satori Wellness in McKinleyville. Also, much appreciation to our sponsor, Bear Extraction House. We'll be back with the Humboldt Chronicles at 6 p.m. on the third Wednesday of January. See you next time, January 20th at 6 p.m.